Well, God has been so merciful to us through the gospel, and it's so sweet that we can explore the gospel and learn from God and be ministered to by God through the Spirit, by His Word this morning. And so uh, we're going to do that in a second. We're going to open up the good book. But before we do so, I invite you to, uh, to pray with me. Uh, Jesus, thank you for how gentle and how lowly you are, how pastoral you are. You're a great leader. You're a perfect counselor. You shepherd our souls and care for us in the exact way we need, both corporately and individually. And you're strong like a lion. Thank you for your word. I pray that you would roar this morning. Bless our time as we look to you. Make these words come alive. We pray in your name. Amen. Amen? Amen. Amen. Well, uh, one night last week, my wife, uh, after Lizzie and I, uh, my wife and I put the, the, the kids down to sleep, we, we started to settle down and get into our normal routine, which is usually before bed, uh, Netflix, Amazon Prime, and or a sweet or savory snack. And so uh, that's what we started to prepare to do. I was near the kitchen getting ready to find something delish, uh, delicious. Lizzie was over on the couch. We we switched some roles that night, and she was trying to find for us a show. And as she was there uh, trying to find the show, she said, Babe, come in here. you got to see this. And so I walked over, stood behind the couch, looked at the TV, and she uh, said, Watch this. And she clicked on this trailer of this new um, Netflix show called God's Favorite Idiot. And uh, I don't recommend you watching it. Um, the show, at least from the trailer, was, was blasphemous. Um, but it was eye-opening um, to our culture's take on the end times. The, the entire premise of the show was making fun of biblical themes concerning the end of the world. And so the trailer had these intentional cheesy shots of angels coming down from heaven, uh, zapping people with light, and people were then going on to use that light to be influencers on their social media accounts, um, taking heed um, instruction from the angels which said to them in, the, in, in their visitation, stay true to who you are. Other characters in the show were taken from the um, symbolic um, uh, figures from the book of Revelation. They were presented humorously as uh, medieval characters riding around on horses, kind of dumb and confused. One of the first episodes in the season is titled The Preacher. The summary of that episode begins with the words, end times, good times. The next episode after that um, is titled, God, Satan, and Good Smells. I think you get the point. This show is a reflection on our culture's temptation to take lightly what the Word of God says about the end of the world. To present it to us as some sort of fictional story or fairy tale that we can find entertainment in and or laugh over, which honestly is ignorant and also presumptuous to the truth that the Bible contains. And so this morning, what I would like to do in light of our text that God has providentially given us is push back on this idea, not just by revealing the reality of God, 
but taking it a step further to reveal the severity of God. And some might say, James, that doesn't sound like you. Whoa, man, where's, where's the grace and, and love in that? Well, I, I believe that there is abundance, an abundance of grace and, and love found in considering what the Bible says to be true about God's severity because this topic of God's severity serves to sober us with the truth and reality of his judgment. And thus it prepares us for what is coming, for the day that each and every one of us is going to face either tomorrow or somewhere between that end of time. And uh, of course, this sermon is not going to be without hope. My priority in this text, as is always, is to show you Christ and to remind you of the grace and mercy that is found in God, which is offered to everyone who would heed his word. And so this morning, we're going to continue along our sermon series in the next uh, text that God has uh, brought to us um, this morning in Mark. And so if you have a Bible or cell phone, please feel free to turn that on or open. We're going to continue our series in Mark being in chapter 13, examining verses 32 through 37. Mark chapter 13, verses 32 through 37. If you look there on the screens, I've titled this sermon, The Return of Christ and the State of the World. Three things I'd like to show you from this text are this. Number one, Christ is coming. Uh, Number two, the sleeping. And number three, the awake. We're going to begin our time together by reading again the words up front. Mark chapter 13, verses 32 through 37. Jesus, in his sermon on the Mount of Olives, continued to say this. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Awake. My brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. Thanks be to our Lord. Right now we're moving to point number one, which is Christ is is coming. Well, this morning we we, we find ourselves in the third week of our study in chapter 13. And and here we are in the the final words of Jesus' sermon on the the Mount of Olives. And uh, what we have seen over the past three weeks has been Christ's teaching on the, on the topic of judgment. Specifically within this context, his prophetic announcement of judgment on Jerusalem and the temple. In other words, Jesus' words throughout this chapter has, have been a prophecy of judgment to, end, uh, to mark the end of God's presence in the temple amongst the Jews and a beginning of a new age. 
In uh, 70 AD, Jesus' prophecy was fulfilled through a a war called the Siege of Jerusalem. It was a war that took place between the Jews and the Romans, and the Romans, because of their great, powerful, militant uh, army, came in, overthrew Jerusalem in this horrific way, overthrew the city, persecuted the Jews, and destroyed the epicenter of religion that lay in the city, a.k.a. the temple. And uh, this issue has been a heavier topic for us because over the past few weeks, what we have also learned and seen is that part of Jesus' words and teaching here in this sermon possess double meaning and thus have double implication. In other words... Jesus' warning and message about hardship and judgment and the end times to his disciples were not only fulfilled historically through the siege of Jerusalem, but were also a reference to future things to come. And what we have learned and seen through examining some of Jesus' intentional language um, uh, are are these exact things. In, In fact, if you look there in verse 32, you'll see some of this intentional language that Jesus uses again. Uh, in verse 32, there is that expression, that day. How does this remind us of the end times? Well, this phrase, that, that day, is also a phrase that is found in Joel, Amos, Micah, Obadiah, Zephaniah, and Zechariah, which were all Old Testament prophecy, prophecies that used this very phrase within this very context of announcing the coming day of the Lord's return. In other words, Jesus here in verse 32, through use of this phrase, that day, is not only referring to its historic moment there in this text, but also to a future time, which we have learned is the time of his second coming. In fact, the Apostle Paul, all throughout the New Testament, helps us see clearly this exact thing. In 1 Thessalonians, in 2 Thessalonians, in 2 Peter, in 1 Corinthians, and also in Philippians, Paul uses this very phrase to refer to the return of Christ. We didn't read it, but if you look there in verse 30, Jesus says this. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass until all these things take place. Referring to judgment on Jerusalem and the temple. But then, but then look how Mark transitions us into the next portion of the text in verse 32. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. I believe that Mark, through his writing, is seeking to distinguish these two events. In verse 30. It literally applies to the taking, the siege of Jerusalem by Rome. And in verse 32, we have a prefigurement of the day of the Lord. In other words, the former serves to point to the later. So so why is it important that we emphasize the second coming from this text? Because this is what helps us make sense of the age that we are currently living in now. That the second coming is the very thing that brings fulfillment to all of God's work and all of God's promises in the Bible concerning the story of man from Genesis to the end. And so when Christ comes again, he's going to come to eradicate sin. He's going to come to bring heaven down to earth. He's going to come and make the earth new. We're going to get new bodies 
and Christ is going to put an end to our misery, suffering, and death. After he's done with that, he's going to usher us in to the presence of God forever. This is why the second coming is everything for us. And so, and so if you're a Christian here, here's what you must believe concerning the end times. Number one, that Christ will return. Number two, that his return will be literal and physical. And number three, on that great day, he will come to judge the living and the dead. Apart from these things, opinions vary on how the details are all going to pan out and, and take place. Uh, but within this topic, as we explore it, what starts to happen is that people tend to gravitate towards two extremes. Extreme number one are those who say, ah, you know what? The Bible says that Jesus is coming. That's enough for me. I don't need to know the details because everyone really, if we're actually tr thinking about it, can't actually know the details. I'll leave that subject for other people to study. And uh, I'd say in response to that, uh, that's actually a low evidence or a desire, um, evidence of a low desire to know and love God through knowing and loving his word because God has given us more detail than merely that. Even though we can't figure it all out, it is good for us as Christians to study, wrestle over these things, and be challenged by them. And, and on the other hand, there are people who get so caught up on this subject of the end times that what ends up happening is that they start spiraling themselves down this rabbit hole and find themselves either in one of two places. Number one, either lost and totally confused, or number two, that they have perfectly, completely understood and have the right answer about how it's all going to take place. I'd uh, also say that that's a weak position to be in because God has intentionally left vague some of the details for a reason. Thus, it is right for us to have an opinion and or even a conviction concerning the end times, but it is wrong for us not to care or think that we have it all perfectly and completely figured out. I was uh, telling my boys a, a, a good night uh, bedtime story the other day. I, I often do that the majority of the week. I take them up, I read them a story, or um, if I'm feeling creative, I'll, I'll, I'll try to take a children's version, take on the story or text that I'll be preaching from that Sunday. And so that's what I did with them this week. I, I chose them a, a children's uh, version of, of the story, and they loved it. They loved the idea of Jesus cracking through the sky with power coming to, um, to save and redeem his church. Amen. Amen. And so um, that's what I did. I told them this very story in the text that Jesus is coming back. And after I was done praying with them, I went to give them uh, little kisses on their forehead, and I bent over down to my three-year-old son, Hudson, and uh, <laughs> he, um, he kind of grabbed my head, pulled me in, and he whispered in my ear, five years. <laughs> I was like, uh, what, buddy? What are you talking about? He's like, Jesus is coming in five years. And I was like, all right, man. Well, uh, I don't think you're right. Jesus says no one knows. But hey, stay ready, Hudson. <laughs> you see, this is what Jesus is actually doing, us, doing for us here. He is both telling us of the impossibility of knowing the exact moment of the Lord's return, but indeed telling us for certain that it is going to happen. And so in the midst of this chapter, which includes suffering, hard times, 
trial, persecution, calamity, and strife, Jesus is saying to us as we experience these things, the one thing, church, that I want you to remember and be confident in above all else in, these, in this current age of the already and not yet is that I am coming again. Therefore, know that on that day, all of your strife, sorrow, and everything that brings turmoil or struggle to your soul will be no more. One of my favorite preachers is a man by the name of John Piper. John recently wrote this book uh, titled Come, Lord Jesus. And um, the entire premise of the book is actually over this question, do you love the second coming? Listen to the phraseology of that. The question is not merely, do you believe in the second coming? The question is not merely, do you know about the second coming? The question is, do you love the second coming? Do you love the hope which is found in the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ to ransom us, the church? You see, this chapter does not hold out to us a false hope for Christian living. Jesus does not say to his disciples in light of this context, hey, follow me and you're going to live your best life now. He says, no, hey, hey, follow me and let me set your expectations straight. Know that in this life, suffering will come to you. But as it does, know for certain that you are not without hope or promise for God through this gospel in the work that I am about to complete is about to give you a type of hope and power that through it you are able to overcome every trial, tribulation, or suffering that comes your way. That is the power that is found in the resurrection thus pointing us to the second coming of Jesus. And so we do well as Christians to remember suffering and persecution that both of these things have been present in every Christian life ever since the beginning of the church. Last week, Andres Ares, the, the guest, guest preacher, told us about how our brothers and sisters across the globe are dying each month for the sake of the gospel. But I'm also reminding you that gospel suffering is not only reserved for martyrdom overseas, is it also found here in Lilburn, at this church, in your homes, where you work, live, and play? You know what I'm talking about when I mention things like depression. You, me you know what I'm talking about when I mention things like broken relationships and anxiety and disease and loneliness and need and unfulfilled promises and unmet hopes. Everyone has their own type of cross to carry. Everyone here carries around unique and specific burdens that seek to tire and weary our souls. Because of this broken world, this broken life, and this time that we are living in, in between the first and second coming of Christ. But then Jesus, in all of our sorrow and pain, says to us from John chapter 16, I have told you these things so that in me you might have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. See, Jesus is hinting to us from this passage that everything that happens to us here in this life is being projected onto the screen of eternity. In other words, all of this 
that you may or may not be able to make sense of is working out for you and for me and for us an eternal weight of glory which will one day be revealed at the coming of our Savior. Therefore, we as Christians know that we are called to live in the now in light of the then. I ask you, in light of this, how often, Christian, do you think about the return of Christ? How often do you draw strength from it? What role does it play in your ability to persevere and carry on? How does it affect your faithfulness? In what ways does the second coming impact your joy? How does the second coming shape your worldview? My brothers and sisters, we must believe in the second coming even further. We must meditate on it. We must trust in it. We must hope in it. We must find confidence in it. And we must love it because it is the literal appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our Savior died. Our Savior rose. He now therefore lives. And the promise is certain. He is coming back again. And the church of Christ said, That was point number one, Christ is coming. I'd like to uh, show you now point number two, an endeavor upon this topic here, the sleeping. As we move into the second point here, what I want for you to notice is this word sleeping that I've uh, selected. I'm, I'm actually using this, this word differently than it's used in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. If you were to open up your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, you would find that the word sleeping refers to those who are dead in Christ, whose bodies are laid in the ground, awaiting the hope of the final resurrection to get new bodies. I'm, uh, I'm not using that word um, sleeping here, but rather I'm using this word sleeping to describe a type of spiritual lethargy, spiritual laziness, spiritual slumber, spiritual slothfulness, spiritual distraction, a spiritual not taking seriously the reality of the gospel and those things that will take place at Christ's final return. If you look there in verse 36, you'll see where I'm finding this idea. Jesus is saying that the day and hour of his return will come when those who with confidence in their calculations and or disregard the gospel are found sleeping. Four times in these five verses, Christ uses the word, stay awake. Five times through, different, uh, through use of three different words in the sermon, Jesus warns the disciples and says, be on guard or take watch. And instead of elaborating on this idea, in verse 34, Jesus gives us this mini parable. It's of this parable of this uh, homeowner, master, who goes away on this business trip puts in charge his servants, and his servants are given the responsibility to work. And uh, within this parable, there's a focus on the doorkeeper. The master gives the doorkeeper the specific responsibility of keeping watch. And so here we are, chapter 13, in the context of the end times. Jesus, from here, starting in chapter 14, is going to go on to pursue death and then, then die. Then he's going to raise from the dead and ascend to heaven. And then after that, as the gospel and the New Testament text continue, we're going to see Christ 
Give to the disciples and the church the responsibility of being watchful and faithful with the gospel and their lives until he returns for them. In Matthew chapter 24, we're given this same parable, but in Matthew's recording of it, there's much more detail. I'd like to uh, read it to you because the words are striking. Jesus says this, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Who then is the faithful and wise servant of whom his master has set over his household? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect and an hour that he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Mark here in in verse 37 intentionally ends this sermon on the Mount of Olives with just two words. Two words which sum up the whole instruction from the teaching of Christ. Stay awake. Sleeping here in the context of the second coming and the final judgment is a symbol of spiritual lethargy which causes a person to live as if Jesus' return is actually not that big of a deal. Like if it's somewhere way off, far in a distance, or it's not that important. But after reading to you from Matthew chapter 24, I don't think I need to explain to you how important or crucial this actually is. And so I ask you, in light of this text... From Jesus himself, are you sleeping? My heart breaks for those of you who are, because as bad as I want to wake you up, I am powerless to do that. My words won't do it. Only God's word paired with his spirit can wake you up. And so, and I'll, uh, I'll continue to read. But among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or greed. Neither shall there be obscenity, foolish talk, or crude joking, which are out of character, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person that is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of such thing, the wrath of God is coming on the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. For you were once in darkness, but now you are in light in the Lord. So walk as children in the light, for the fruit of light consists of goodness and righteousness and truth. Test and prove what pleases the Lord. Have no fellowship with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is even shameful to mention what the disobedient do in in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, for everything that is illuminated becomes as light itself. So it is said, wake up, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, 
and the light of Christ will shine on you. This is now typically where I stop to give an illustration or a story to break it up, but God's word is elaborate on this. I like to keep reading. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Now, brothers and sisters, about the end times and dates, we don't want to write to you, for you know very well that the day the Lord is going to come like a thief in the night, while people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness, so then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake. Revelation chapter 3. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, right? These are the words of the amen. The faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold or hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens a door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. And so I ask you, in light of all of this again, are you sleeping? This is a matter of life and death. Are you a lukewarm Christian? Are you on faith autopilot? Do you honor God with your lips, but your heart is far from him? Have you forgotten your first love? Are you in secret, habitual, or stubborn sin? Are you half in and half out? I say this out of love. Wake up. Repent. And the light of Christ will shine on you. You see, the second point is indeed grace because it is an opportunity to know the mercy of God before the judgment of God. And you might say to me, James, you don't know what I've done, man. And I say, you're right, God does. And he, for sinners in this age, leads them to the cross. And in Christ, for you, there is an infinite amount of grace and eternal mercy. This is the good news of the gospel I feel like fainting. Through Jesus' death on the cross, your sin was taken care of. The penalty was paid in full. Jesus Christ took upon himself the full weight and wrath of God so you can be forgiven. Past, present, and future. Eternity past. And so, sinner, cling to Christ. Those who cling to Christ have been united to Christ by faith, therefore are without an ounce of guilt or condemnation. Those who have been united to Christ by faith are justified, forgiven, accepted, set free forever and ever. It is not reversible because Christ died once and for all. But the judgment of God 
is coming on those who are sleeping. It's going to be a terrible day. That was point number two, the sleeping. I'd like to finish now our time in point number three, the awake. I really wanted to title this uh, last point, um, The Faithful. But in keeping with this theme, and more importantly, Jesus' words here, I stuck with awake. And I want to be as clear as I can um, concerning what I mean by awake. When I say awake, um, I don't want you to think perfect or sinless. I don't want you to do what people typically tend to do over this topic of God's severity and or judgment and say, wow, that's really intense. I better try harder, pick myself up my bootstraps, and really get my spiritual act together. That is moralism. There is danger in that. That is self-centered theology. That is not what we are about, and that is not the fruit of true gospel grace. I, use, I want to use this term awake here to mean or to symbolize some sort of synonymous idea to the idea of faithfulness. And I say the idea of faithfulness because our obedience to God comes from having faith in the one who alone saves. Jesus alone saves. Jesus alone is sinless. Jesus alone is worthy to stand before God's throne. No one without Christ is able to stand before God's throne without him, not the Pope, not all the way down to the drunkard or murderer. Only Jesus is able to stand before God's throne. And so Jesus' instruction here to stay awake is a picture of a person who keeps their eyes hopefully looking out for that salvation that one day Christ is going to bring and complete. This picture is of a Christian who lives their life with vigilance in light of the weight and reality of the gospel, whose life is passionately pursuing obedience to bear fruit from faith in Christ alone, the Savior. And so do you want to know how to draw near to God? Do you want to know how to obey him? Do you want to know how your life can be filled with watchfulness and good works? It is not by telling yourself, try harder self. It is by considering the worth and value of the Son of God on a cross for you. That God so loved you and the world that he gave himself up to justify and pardon the otherwise unjustifiable or unpardonable. That on the cross, Christ was thinking for you. He was aching and longing to reconcile to you, to himself. Oh, how he loves is a song that we sang. Those words could not be any more true, and they are exemplified in full as the Son of Man hung on a cross. God wants to give you himself. The offer of Christianity is not a list of morals or to-dos. The offer of Christianity is God himself who wants to clean house and come and make you new, awaken your soul with the Spirit and shine the light of the gospel on you so that you would be regenerate, made new, desirous of God from the inside out instead of taking an outside list and trying to change the in. You see, we as God's people are his servants who've been given a task, and that task for the church is to watch and wait faithfully. The time of Christ's return is unknown. He's coming again. 
And so in light of obedience and faithfulness, my charge to you is this. Don't grow weary in well-doing. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Live at peace with those in the church. Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak. Strive to do what is right. Rejoice always and give thanks to God in all circumstances and situations for this is the will of God for you in Jesus Christ. You see, within this passage, there is the best news in the entire world for the church. The church on the second coming of Christ on that day, it will not be a terrible day. It will be a glorious day. The day where our Savior comes, whether we are living or dead, he will call us out of the ground or from this ground to meet him in the sky. We will ascend with him on the cloud. We will bask with him in glory. He'll call us his bride. Then we'll descend from that cloud on the ground and there we will watch our Savior judge the living and the dead. And no longer from the events of that day will we cry out as God's people, how long? For our Savior will bring justice on those who deserve justice. He will punish the punishable and on that day also he will throw our greatest enemy, Satan himself, into the eternal lake of fire. And we, the church, will shout, hallelujah. hallelujah. The Lord God Almighty reigns. His judgments are true. His ways are just. Praise be to our Lord Jesus Christ forever and ever, times without number, again and again. And the more we sing it, the more delight it will bring to our immortal souls as we dwell in the presence of God forever with him. I pray that we, the church, because of our master's love and work for us, would love and work and serve him faithfully by staying awake and remaining true for he has promised us in Revelation and said, Behold, I am coming again to you soon. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Lord, for this word. Thank you, Lord, for your word. You are the word. Revitalize, bring strength, mission, faithfulness. Wake up the sleeper. Bring strength to the faithful who are suffering. Help us to endure. Thank you for your spirit. That's exactly what he does. He's keeping us until the second coming. One day you're going to save us, Lord, and make our salvation complete. We love you and we pray in your name. Amen.